HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Dara Bresnitz. On today's episode, we welcome restaurant royalty, Sophie McNally, who's the founder and CEO of Kitchenette. We talk about growing up in the New York restaurant scene, her eventual move to the West Coast, and the founding and launch and incredible mission behind her company, Kitchenette. Then it's a dive deep into the archives from the garage duo out of Virginia, now living in Brooklyn, known as the Winstons. They talk about the love for the blues, the raw energy of their live show, and their dynamic juxtaposition of devotion and depravity. It's a great, great, great performance. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Enjoying my 
for more Better still in store For me Sophie, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat. I know you're running a business. You got kids. You know, the holiday season's knocking at the door. So yeah, (laughs) appreciate you making the time. (laughs) Of course. And thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the pod. Oh, well, thank you so much. So listen, it is safe to say that few people have grown up in restaurants as much as you have. And not just restaurants, but like restaurant culture and in no greater city than New York. How did growing up in that world affect your outlook on the world? Um, you know, it's funny. Yes, I, I grew up, um, both my parents were in the restaurant business in New York. Um, they were both very hardworking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whenever, whatever your childhood is sort of becomes the norm. So it's always a funny mm. question to answer. Um, and I, I do remember someone asking me this question recently in a slightly different way, which was sort of like, well, weren't you just like a crazy kid that was like allowed to get whatever they wanted because your parents had these restaurants and it was sort of the opposite. I think Mm. the effect it had on me was, and my siblings as well, though I wouldn't speak for them, um, (laughs) is that I ended up identifying more with the person serving you than the person sitting, you know, in the booth or at the table, Mm. um, asking for something just because those were the people my parents spent, you know, their whole days with. Um, so I think it gave me, um, a sense of appreciation for, you know, everyone working a service job. So you're not Eloise running a in the plaza. No, 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 no. (laughs) No. Um, And and my parents would have been horrified. Of course. Let that happen. Of course, Um, you're 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 representing the family. Yeah, exactly. Um, So being around, not just I would say the food of it all and the show of it all, but being you know immersed in the hospitality, which is really I think why. some of the restaurants that your family's a part of have stayed in business for so long. What did you learn about hospitality and service, especially since you related to those people more than maybe the customers at that age? Sure. Um, I think one of my 
biggest takeaways is the importance of clear communication mm. um, and the importance of just things that, um, you know, in hindsight seem obvious. It's a lot of small gestures, making eye contact right away when someone walks in the door, hmm. never prioritizing the phone or screen when there's a real customer in front of you, but using those things, you know, in the ways that makes the most sense for the customer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um you know, listening, yeah, listening and, and, and being reasonable and trying to accommodate and also, um, recognizing, you know, rewarding or cultivating regulars. I think as much as a lot of, you know, well-known restaurants get publicity for the occasional celebrity, um, their success is really due to the people whose names are not household names and, Mm -hmm. um, three or four times a week, um, and who need to be treated like celebrities, um, because they're the mm. ones, you know, making your business. Yeah. That neighborhood restaurant, regular repeat business is the actual secret to longevity. It's not, Correct. you can't sustain heat. You can't sustain exactly. being a hotspot forever. Exactly. And, and you and, never want to be too hot because people move on. Yeah. You want to be the right level of popular where you're in vogue and then maybe you're a little less in vogue and then you, you're, you're back as a thing. It's just, it's like this ebb and flow, but the, the, the beating heartbeat of the restaurant is always the people are coming in for lunch at 2 PM on a Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of that, because what we're really getting at is the business side of the, of the, the restaurant industry. And it's, it's, you know, been more focused on now, I think, than ever about the slim margins and how to balance everything and pay and, you know, running a P&L and making sure that you make payroll and things like that. And you got you got into it pretty deep um, by serving as the interim CEO at your father's restaurant group. Mm-hmm. Was that a crash course? Did you know the business before or was that when you really learned the business? And why is it so important to understand the business of working within the food world? Yeah. I mean, I, so to answer the first part of the question, I had worked with my dad for a long time, um, prior to serving as CEO. Mm. Um, and so it was not new. I would say some of the issues that I dealt with were, you know, were things that I had always kind of taken the lead on because they were areas that my dad did not enjoy working in, um, (laughs) and just became more relevant when he was temporarily, um, out of the picture for a few months. And, um, and so that was not, yes, you had, it took sort of stepping up and, um, a new level of focus, but it was not brand new. And, um, I, I learned a lot, but there wasn't a humongous learning curve on the job, thankfully. Um, and then what was the second part of that question? Second part of just really understanding the world of business when it comes to working within food, either in a restaurant or a CPG business, or just, you know, what that really means to run the business of food. Yeah. I mean, I would go back and I don't even know if this is specific to food, um, but I would go back to the communication piece. I think mm. that, you know, to, to our point earlier, um, being explicit about things in hospitality that might seem obvious and sometimes that requires a ton of repetition about what service means to you and what your protocols are. Um, you know, turnover in, in the hospitality industry uh, traditionally has been high. So there are always new people so that, you know, creates an opportunity for misinterpretation. Mm. Um, and similarly, you know, communication around numbers and what you can afford to spend on different ingredients or labor and figure and, and communicating about that um, and not making assumptions that, that anything is a given. 
Um, so I think making sure that you're talking to the busers about giving, uh, you know, guests the right of way when they're walking down, you know, mm. in the restaurant and talking to chefs about what your, you know, goals are for food costs are equally important. Yeah. I mean, just really understanding like what it means to fit within the community is so important when you're running a restaurant and understanding that people, especially in New York are, you know, everyone has their apartment, but New York is really, it's just, it's an extended part of their living space as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of community, I know that beyond the restaurant world and the work you did with your family, you also got involved in the nonprofit space, especially when um, focusing on kids and food and nutrition and things like that. What got you into that world? What made you start looking at supporting the younger uh, community of New York City? Yeah, I mean, I think um, <clears throat> so. I was involved in Edible Schoolyard. Mm-hmm. I was their first employee in New York. Um, and then continued to stay involved um, after leaving the organization formally um, or as an employee. And I think from a young age, and maybe this <clears throat> is sort of subconsciously having been steeped in the world of food, although mm-hmm. my parents, neither of my parents were chefs. So they weren't, you know, their focus was much more the business, the space, the hospitality, and yes, of course, the food, but um, they were not in the kitchen. Um, I think I probably took um, a an outsized outside interest, outsized, excuse me, interest <laughs> in the food itself and sort of the, the health piece of it. Mm. Um, and, you know, did my own reading and understanding from a pretty early age about, you know, what food systems look like mm. in this country, what food access looks like, how big of an impact it can have on your long-term health. Um, and, and I'm always, I've always been interested in sort of how that connects to um, traditions around food and eating. And, you know, community is a big piece of that. Um, so like eating dinner together around the table is, is really important and an indicator of, of long-term health for a lot of people. Um, and so, and I had known for a long time about Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley and had been really fascinated by it and just mm, Alice Waters and everything you know, her whole ethos around food. Um, and so when I learned that they were trying to open in New York, I just sort of jumped at the opportunity to get involved. And did you find a welcoming reception to this type of support and this type of action of of supporting parents and kids and getting them to think about what they put in their bodies and nutrition and helping helping people eat um, and get, get the – a better meal possibly than processed foods um, into their, into their daily livelihood. Yeah. I mean, it, in my experience, um, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you have to have buy-in from the community, whether sure. that's the kids themselves, the school, the parents, um, that's a really critical piece of it that I think often gets overlooked. Um, but yes, the reception was very positive. I mean, we were a nonprofit um, bringing a, a big, you know, beautiful garden to what had been, um, a parking lot. Um, and it was incredible to sort of see that transformation. There there were not many opponents. (laughs) No, no, no. I, I think, I I think if you're just supporting and not a hundred percent preaching, I think, you know, New Yorkers as a whole can be very receptive to change if, if it's coming from the right spot. Yeah. Um, 
Now, listen, born and bred in New York, in the restaurant world, nonprofit, but you 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 moved. You moved to the West Coast, which is also where, where I'm located as well. Um, what Maybe. eventually got you out of New York City? You know, if anyone I thought would be in there forever, I, I would say it'd be you, but now I it's know. just a place you visit. <laughs> It is. I I surprised myself with that. Um, <laughs> and I would probably blame it on my husband. Um, mm. I mean, I would. I, um, you know, when we were getting married or planning to, he had moved to LA and we were, I was doing the bi-coastal thing for a few sure, years. Sure. And then when it finally came down to figuring out where we were going to settle um, for a handful of reasons, LA just sort of one, um, or the West Coast did. Um, at the time, it was LA. Um, and there wasn't, I mean, I was sort of, I was leaving for good from my, my family business, my dad's restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of at a crossroads career-wise and had the flexibility to move because of that. Um, and, uh, and we had sort of, you know, developed a community in LA. And yeah. a lot of friends had moved there, as I'm sure you've seen in the last... Mm-hmm. 10 years mm-hmm. um there's been a big movement from yeah. from new york to la um and i think we we both felt like it had been this one industry town that was becoming a lot more interesting um and and new york felt like it was becoming more and more gentrified and less and we mm-hmm. were in manhattan i think there's a very different um vibe in brooklyn where a lot no, of friends who are raising families i will families. say i went back to williamsburg and of all the places i visited that felt the most different versus like the east village and things like that oh really interesting yeah, yeah. um but yeah the, i mean the weather <laughs> it's got sure. the weather going sure. and the vibrant food scene i mean and oh. uh i mean back to sort of like the interest in um in where food comes from the the farmers markets were like a really Ugh. big big pull for me yeah you can just i mean it feels so much like paris and france where just like every little area has its own mm-hmm. farmer's market you don't just have to go to you know one of the more centralized places and fight the crowds every three days exactly um exactly. let's take a quick little break and when i come back i want to talk about uh kitchenette uh your company Wait. Uh, I want to talk about how you've merged all your worlds together to help sort of find the foundation for this and how actually you did look to other countries like Paris, uh, uh, like France, um, to get away from the stigma of frozen food that sometimes you can find in America. We have a song from the archives and then a musical break here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
heart is gone to see. Leave your lonely here with me. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Sophie McNally, the founder and CEO of Kitchenette. And before the break, we were chatting about you leaving New York for the West Coast. And not only that, you said that you had left your the family business of the restaurant world. Um, when did you start thinking about what you wanted to do next? And was it always going to be food? Was it always going to be something within the culinary landscape? How did you identify what was missing from what you thought was, you know, again, a pretty saturated food market. Yeah. Um, so when we moved, I think I always gravitated towards food. So mm-hmm. I probably entertained other things, but um, that was always, you know, my focus. Um, when I settled into LA and finally became full time as opposed to by coastal, um, I had just had a, a baby and then COVID hit on her first birthday. Mm. Um, and so everything kind of quieted down for a minute. Um, you know, we were, I was just sort of cooking three meals a day, trying to figure out when this was going to come to an end and, um, and then hit a wall, um, Mm -hmm. and didn't want to cook anymore and really missed working and, um, and started using the freezer in a way that I just never had before. I don't think I used my freezer for anything in New York. Um, but when you're trying to feed a family and, um, they have to eat three times a day, Mm -hmm. um, and you want to have a meal together at five 30, it's just like the, the math doesn't work for a lot of people. You have to start cooking at four and that's, that's the middle of the work day in my, in my book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, I started batch cooking, you know, things that, that froze really well. So like 
meatballs, casseroles, et cetera. And it was really like a game changer for me. Um, and then when I got even lazier and looked around um, for sources to buy this stuff, um, I couldn't find anything. And I was really mm. surprised. Um, and it made me think a lot about a company that I've always admired in France called Picard. Um, mm -hmm, and Picard mm -hmm. is a huge company that um, I think is like vertically integrated at this point. Um, but they have brick and mortar stores all over France. So like in every neighborhood, there's a Picard. Um, and there are these really small footprint shops. They're just full of freezers. Um, and, you know, even Parisians will buy these frozen hors d'oeuvres and serve them at their dinner party. So that alone sort of made me feel like the U.S. could do better and could have something um, that wasn't sad. Um, I mean, I there are a handful of frozen products that are decent, but nothing that really felt like family dinner for me or a shared sure. dinner. Um, like you can get a good burrito, but I don't want to sit around the table and each unwrap your own burrito for dinner. Like that's right. super depressing. Um, and, and so I did some research. I started, I, I sort of looked at um, other, even in the UK, there's a lot more, there are a lot more options for, for like family style frozen meals. Um, and just started doing some R and D. I found a chef to work with. Um, I'm very much a home cook and not professional, so right. um, I and needed this is someone a very who specific had those. Type of cooking too. Yes, exactly. Um, put a business plan together, and um, in the meantime, we had actually left LA. We'd moved to Santa Barbara. Mm. Um, it was supposed to be temporary, and then, like a lot of people, we just ended up staying. Um, and um, yeah. And that, that was sort of my inspiration was my personal experience and, and starting to use the freezer and talking to other people, especially, you know, parents, because that's sort of where I am in life about how they fed their families and everyone seems to struggle with it at least a couple of times a week. Um, I mean, I think that <laughs> yeah. the, the aspiration is always to cook fresh and if you can pick, you know, vegetables from your garden and sure. have amazing, amazing proteins seven nights a week, great. Um, but I found that that was not the case for most people. Um, and so on the nights when, you know, you might otherwise resort to ordering out, I felt like this was a much better alternative. Um, mm. And then looking at sort of the other alternative, which is meal kits, yeah. um, it again missed that communal component for me that I think is really important. Um, and also involved a lot of waste in both in terms of the amount of packaging mm -hmm. and shipping that goes into those things. Um, but also food waste. And that's something that, especially during COVID, I just started becoming, and I think some sure. kids much more, um, conscious of was, you know, the extent to which food, our food system contributes to the climate issues um, and food waste is a big piece of that. Um, I think about 40% of food in the U.S. goes to waste. Um, wow. And a lot of that is food that ends up in landfills, which creates greenhouse gases that are much more potent um, than CO2. So mm -hmm. it, it also felt preventable. Um, and so the secondary sort of problem it, that frozen food solved for me was not having to micromanage what was in my fridge all week long. Um, and, and try to avoid throwing anything out. Mm. So you have this idea, this, this new concept of presenting 
easy meals for working families, which as a father who cooks for the family, I completely can relate to. But then you also have this background of like the restaurant world and hospitality and, and business and nutrition and, you know, being a mom yourself. And it's great to have all these things swirling around your head, but how do you take all those things and turn it into the reality of Kitchenette? Um, I really started from a place of like what I wanted, knowing everything mm. that I know and knowing how careful I am about sourcing for my own family and for myself, um, while also making it you know somewhat affordable. Although having said that, like our price point is not comparable to what you'll find in the freezer section of grocery store. It's much more of an alternative to say like meal kits or takeout. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's worth paying for real food. So um, the, the sourcing and sort of the nutritional component was really important to me. But then, you know, having come maybe from the restaurants, I think first you have to focus on flavor. I mean, it has to be mm -hmm. delicious. It has to be oh, enjoyable. Yeah. You have to create a positive experience and then you have to make it the best version of that possible from, you know, a nutritional point of view. Yeah. I mean, it can't just be, and I think this is where sometimes the stigma can come from in America. It's either like an insane amount of food. And I'm thinking yeah. of like the hunger man, double XL. It's like, <laughs> yes. it's like a salt bomb or a sugar bomb, or it's just mush. There's like no texture. And so having that idea of pulling from other countries, as you mentioned, like, like France, like the UK, where they think they've taken a different route and what, um, frozen meals can be, that is a different way. I mean, that's like the first step, maybe shifting the perception and the stigma in America. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think that there just haven't been, I think another, I've thought a lot about the sort of stigma piece in the U S and why it's mm. the case. I think that, um, you know, the association with TV dinners is still there. Um, and those are obviously the opposite of like, you know, a communal, again, like shared dinner experience. It's solitary. You're sitting in front of the TV. Um, it's sort of like everything mm. you're not supposed to do um, <laughs> when you're eating a meal, dinner in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the farm to table movement, which I am all for and believe in sort of the, the philosophy of, um, has really emphasized freshness and, and local, um, which is great for the most part, but I think it's been at the expense of, or, or sort of, yeah, at the expense of the opportunities when it comes to frozen. Mm, so I think I, that, on, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say just, just on the farm to table and the freshness and all like that, especially living, um, you know, where you do and, and, uh, how that is such like an emphasis on the way people eat if they want to eat healthy, um, how do you develop your recipes? I mean, I can't imagine you developed one recipe. I know you talked about working with chef and it was a smash hit. Like, did it take time to figure out what, what worked and what didn't work and how to balance all of your needs and, mm -hmm. and what you wanted to say um, to put into uh, the meals of Kitchenette? Yes. I mean, it took, it took quite a bit of time, especially for those early recipes as we, we launched with four dishes. We had planned to launch with five, but we mm. weren't very happy. We were not happy with the fifth. And so we, we went with four. Um, and we've since introduced many new dishes and, and hope to continue introducing lots of, um, lots more. Uh, we've learned that our customers really want variety. So I think that means seasonality, but also just different cuisine, et cetera. 
Um, we, the first four were really staples and because it was sort of what we were coming out the gate with, I think there was, there was a big emphasis obviously on making sure each was as close to perfect as possible. Um, and it's an iterative process. You know, we listen for feedback very closely. So we've made lots of small changes to specific dishes and then introduced, um, things based on what we're, we're hearing from our customers. I mean, it's great to have such a a community, which is, Again, those repeat customers that you talked about in a restaurant that are really this, you know, the steady, steady heartbeat of any yeah. business, getting those people to return again and again um, and offering them something different. I know that you partnered with Bettina, which is arguably yes. probably the most popular pizza place in Santa Barbara. Um, how did that partnership come about? Is that sort of what you're going to offer as well? These other revenue sources for restaurants that have meals that work within your system? Yeah. Um, so the Bettina partnership uh, came about, and for those who don't know, Bettina is a amazing restaurant and mm-hmm. pizzeria in um, Santa Barbara. And you should always book in advance. They take walk-ins, yes. but um, we're sort of a last minute type of family. Um, and so I could never get it together to remember to order, you know, a pizza to go 90 minutes in advance. It's sort of like I call when my kids are hungry. Um, and, and once I started, once we started doing the frozen, um, family dinners, I sort of thought like, it just seemed obvious. So I actually approached Rachel, um, Rachel and Brendan, um, are the owners and I just cold emailed her. It's a tiny community. So as soon mm-hmm, as we met, mm-hmm. we realized we, you know, had lots of people in common. Um, but I just said, look, we have a blast freezer. We have the distribution. We have the marketing channels. Um, we have a small customer base now. And you guys have excess demand. Like, this seems obvious. Um, and she sort of took a leap of faith and said, yeah, we, you know, we're interested in trying it. And so it's been about a month now. And it's been great. They've been amazing to work with. And um, it's been well, very well received. The pizzas are delicious. Um, the best, uh, the, the local, um, sort of newsletter, like lifestyle newsletter here, um, recently reviewed it and he said it was the best frozen pizza he's ever had. Um, Mm. and I would agree. Hmm. Yeah. It's phenomenal pizza. So the business up and running, you're in Wisconsin, Santa Barbara. What is the future of kitchenette look like what would you love to see um i would love to see kitchenette in every american household um that's obviously a ways away um (laughs) but um you know we also say and this is sort of like a mission statement um but it's worth sharing that we you know want to make the freezer every household's greatest ally i think Mm -hmm. that when you look at even like blogs about the aspirational freezer organization or like the pantries that are perfectly organized that I've heard people call mom porn um, or parent porn. Um, I want people to think about their freezer that way. Like I really, um, I believe that rethinking how you use that space can, can be, um, can have huge benefits and go a really long way. Um, So I hope we help shift the culture around frozen food and um, people's perception of what it can be. Um, and also just to continue to grow. And, and yes, I would love to do more restaurant partnerships. We're taking things um, very deliberately, slowly, um, because, you know, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and, mm. and quality and consistency is, is really important. Um, 
but but yeah, we we hope to continue to grow. Amazing. Well, listen, congratulations on everything. If people want to follow along or if they live in the area, they want to sign up for meals, where can they go? How can they get more information? Sure. So we're um, our website and social media is Get Kitchenette. Um, the website is getkitchenette.com. Um, and we, um, we sell directly through our website. We're also available at the Eddie, which is a great um, mm-hmm. little grocer, new grocer in Santa Barbara. Um, and that's it. We're only local at the moment, but um, also sign up for our newsletter um, yes. if you want to know when, we're, when we come to you. Amazing. Well, thank you, Sophie, and shout out to Karen for setting this up. We have yeah. another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to know. Tell me that you love me, dear. And you'll never, never let me go. Cause even if it isn't true, oh, I promise I'll be good to you. So tell me what I want to hear, oh, yeah. Tell me what I need to know. Very, very proud sponsor 
of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm here with Lou and Ben, who make up Winston's. Welcome, boys. Thanks. Thank you. Really good to have you in Very the glad studio. to be here. Yeah. So uh, how did you make it to Brooklyn from Virginia? Um, I, uh... That car, I-95 North. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I, Did you uh, stop? Did you take any scenic routes? Yeah, I think we stopped at, uh, Walt Whitman on New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite. You did you go direct? Stop. Did you... Some people will... I mean, it's not much of a road trip, but did you turn any of it into a road trip? Uh, we have. We've done that corridor a, a lot. A lot. What's the secret? Uh, Timing. Go fast. <laughs> not hit the beltway in D.C. around rush hour. That'll add three hours. Okay, fair. That's pretty practical. I uh, moving up here. I had, used to have a Ford Ranger pickup, and I totally tortoise shell. It was like I looked like a snail. I pretty <laughs> much had everything I owned and was bringing and just put like three tarps over it, and totally Beverly Hillbilly styled it with duct tape and tarps and everything I owned under it. And moved up here in a day and got here at like midnight and. What brought you up here, or what, what forced you out of Virginia? Um, I uh, I met a girl playing a show up here, and decided I was gonna move classic, to New York. Classic City. story. Where's the girl? She's at home right now. Oh, really? Yeah, with her two stepcats. Oh, okay. Is she with you? Uh huh. Oh, amazing. That story doesn't. I mean, I feel like the New York stories. You're like met a girl. Where's the girl? Doesn't matter. Ben, how's your girl? What happened to her? I have the same exact story. Oh, really? Yeah. So you both met girls that were at the same show, or was it different? Well, show? Okay. Yeah, not the same exactly. No, we were okay. playing with different people. We didn't know each other until we lived in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. But we were living in the so, same city in yeah, Virginia. Yeah, we spent a long time. In Are the you same. both from Virginia? I was born and raised in Richmond. Okay. Yeah. I grew up in New Hampshire and then lived in Virginia for. 10 years. So did the band form because you had uh, similar partner stories, or how did you guys get together? I think we were both kind of starting over in terms of uh, music, having relocated here by ourselves independently. Because you have you have two different backgrounds, right? Lou, you're into country and bluegrass, and Ben, you've got jazz horn? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's how I, I grew up. I learned how to play music playing tenor saxophone. Okay. Um, so... Drums is still an indomitable task for me, but it I mean, came really, easy after like doing like those kind of chord changes and trying to solo over it. I was like, oh, I get to hit things now. Great. I mean, you've you've pared it down to a, a snare, some a brass, a, a tambo, mm. and a kick drum. <laughs> yeah, there's still metal involved. There's some metal on board. And how did you? Uh, how were you convinced to put down the the sax and, and pick up the stick? Oh, it's easier to play with people, uh, and that's kind of what happened with us. It was like, hey. You want to jam sometime, and then it worked really well and made us both happy. So, uh, yeah, no one was like begging for a sax player in a in a Brooklyn band. Uh, no. And then for you, you I mean, for your background of uh, country I, and bluegrass, I grew up uh, playing cello and guitar when I was little, and then uh, picked up banjo as a teenager, and then got paid for the first time to play music playing banjo, being like a banjo sideman. What was the What was the gig? Uh, it was, um, uh, a guy I knew in college who had a band, um, asked me to join his buddy's band, filling it out with like a fiddle player and a banjo player. Was it a Dave Matthews or Bella Fleck cover band? No, it wasn't. It was pretty, uh, traditional, pretty old. There's a huge, uh, amount of, I mean, that's, uh, we were in Charlottesville, which is like kind of Appalachia adjacent and, uh, everybody grew up playing and all their daddies play and all their granddaddies play and there's so many unbelievable musicians around there um and there's every corner bar has a like a crackerjack bluegrass band got it what was it do you remember the name of the band 
uh, the first time I ever I got paid forty dollars to play in Joe Mama's pajamas one night at the Gravity Lounge. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't my band. I didn't I didn't name it. I didn't sing. The Gravity Lounge is now a CVS. In case you're curious, I am. That's sad. Yeah. That's sad. <laughs> Common tale. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, and how long did you play uh, the banjo before you kind of swapped over to a guitar and started writing your own music? Um, I formed a band probably two or three years after that, um, and started uh, writing songs and playing songs I'd written. Uh, um, still playing banjo and doing kind of a heavier rock and roll, mountain rock and roll type thing. And then, uh, what started? Mountain, this, what is mountain rock and roll? It was something we made up because it was bluegrass with drums and electric guitars, and uh, but um, and then just got uh, pr- kind of just tired of playing uh, bluegrass. Um, got got tired of playing banjo. Just got really wasn't good enough to be nuts about it. wasn't that super into the really technical stuff. Uh, it just was had always grown up playing guitar and was more comfortable with it. So after getting paid to play banjo for a while, I figured maybe I could just play guitar cause, and do more with it. What is the most surprising thing about playing banjo that an uninitiated person wouldn't know that makes it so difficult or hard to master? It's just so much uh, right hand. It's so much uh, finger picking. I mean, you can play it a bunch of different ways, and a lot of people do really... There's like claw hammer and there's three finger style, and, and uh, some people just strum it or play it like a guitar. Uh, I was really into Lester Flat and doing the three finger style, and it just I used to just sit literally sit on the couch with the TV remote in my left hand and just do rolls with my finger picks with my right hands for hours and hours and hours. It's just muscle memory. Okay, building that up. Can we hear a song? Yeah. yeah. What are you guys gonna play for us first? This is called uh, Enough. It's uh, the B side of a seven inch we put out February seventeenth on Warhead Records and Grand Jury Records. Great. Here live on Snacky Tunes. It's not nailed down and 
question that you guys sent over to me before the show. Salad. What's the deal? What's the deal with salad? What's the deal with salad? I put everything in it these days. I know. I think it's just they, uh, everybody's trying to get rid of bread, so they're just making big sandwiches and calling them salads. They're just like, um, this is a salad. You're like, it's yeah. a pound and a half. I think you've got, you've missed the point. Yeah. It's a, as long as you leave the bread out, it's, it's fine. Salad. It's just salad. So you work over at Greenpoint Fish and Lobster. I do. I, I wait tables over there. You since wait. They open. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Those boys are great. We've they worked are. with them in the past. It's a great uh, what, institution. What is a, a fan favorite over there of yours? What and what is probably one of the more underrepresented uh, menu items? It, the fish sandwich with French fries. It's the best. It's killer. It's the best. It, I feel like it's one of the best deals in uh, in Greenpoint. Uh, yeah, it's certainly not the thriftiest thing happening. Other than but, a uh, dollar Jello shot at Capri Lounge, fine. That, yeah, okay. That, I mean, I think we're I think we're in two different worlds <laughs> at that point. Yes, nothing could be. Th- Actually, uh, my friend had a birthday, a surprise birthday party there, uh, and just cleared out the Jello shots, and it was like twenty two bucks, and everyone was just done. They make for the best mornings. Yeah, I mean, I just I I can't believe like you the, drink them in the morning. Is that what you mean? Like you put it in your next pocket, morning. the next yeah, like sure. it's, it's like a to go. It's the only to go type of cup you can get. Bathtub of jello shots. Bathtub of jello shots. I mean, I wonder where in the um, hierarchy of Capri are you making jello shots? Is it mm, at the yeah. beginning? Like is that, or you work your way up because it's such a backbone iconic uh, staple there? It's like no, no, no. Only Samantha makes the Jello shots. Well, I mean, sure. I think it'd be a lauded position is the 6 p.m. slurp. Whoever gets a taste test that that jungle juice. <laughs> I don't know. I watched uh, cro- most of Crocodile Dundee in there the other night with commercial breaks. <laughs> I mean, the place if you haven't been, it's probably one of the, like the last havens of uh, best dive bars in in Greenpoint. That's a good one. There's a couple. Conio's is mine. If you've ever been there. Ah, never, where's that? It's right around the corner from me. It's oh, no, under Norman. his house. It's in the basement. It's pretty much under my <laughs> it's, house. It's, it's the sign outside my bedroom door. Yes. It's called Conio's. It's terrific. Yeah. Uh, if you go there, say hey to Barbara for me. Or Lou said hey, hello. You I'll, guys I'll tell her myself. You guys have a recording project in the financial district. Yeah, we were there all day yesterday. Uh, what's the setup and, and why the financial district? Um, uh, a friend of ours who's a, a producer had been... Uh, had taken an interest in what we were up to next, and uh, we said, let's work with, with you in his uh, room. It's called uh, Full Tone Studios, and it's on Fulton. No, I, you didn't F. have to say that. No, we got it. But uh, for, I guess for the, <laughs> for the people not in New York, yeah. Uh, it's oh. fun down there. It's, it's interesting. I got, into yeah. the, I got into the elevator yesterday at noon with an 18-pack of Miller Lite, and all the construction dudes were in there. 
And, and I was like, I couldn't find the door to the basement. And they were like, oh, come to the elevator. I walk in, the door closes, and they push 10. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all just cracked up at my expense. Eh, you know, it was worth it. And is it, I mean, is it one of those things like before 5, you can't really do anything, but after 5, it's just kind of no, no noise problems, no nothing? It's, uh, it's in the basement. There, I don't think there's much down there except for uh, they have a couple of uh, mouser cats in the hallways. <laughs> yeah. But there's not much going on otherwise. But it's just uh, it's just a, a big room. We're a two piece, so we, we like to use all the air. Try not to like segment too much. We don't need a lot of space. But uh, we were there for ten hours yesterday tracking for. What are you guys working on? Um, just always keep working. Uh, we, uh, we so we just put out a seven inch. We're thinking our next project is probably going to be a full length. Um, so we just did a day in the studio, and we don't know what we have yet. Um, but we'll see, and just keep every couple of weeks we'll. Uh, book some studio time and the seven inch came out and you mentioned it before in grand jury and warhen records so uh-huh. how did you hook up with them and why uh why a seven inch uh uh we had two songs that we really liked <laughs> so we put it on a piece of wax uh yeah warren is luke's buddy from charlottesville for a long time real good dude he used to do um production at uh the jefferson which is like the biggest uh it's a big theater the, down there yeah it's nice there. and he has this uh boutique seven inch label so we were we had been touring. We did two uh, southern trips last summer, touring, and we were coming back from one and booked some studio time at a small studio where I used to live that a buddy of mine runs. And uh, so we just went in and recorded for two days because we uh, before we came back to New York, and then uh, started sending those tracks around. He wanted to put it on a seven inch and then we and Grand Jury wanted to put it out digitally. Yeah, Craig and Robbie saw us uh open for Esme Patterson at Mercury Lounge. And we're like, hey. And we went on we went on tour with her later that summer. Um and so you're like, New Orleans hey again. Yeah. Yeah, we said hey back. It was super convenient. The the run yeah. started in Dallas. Oh, okay. At some point someone so. said yo <laughs> or sup. Sup. And then they just like slid a piece of paper with a shot of bur- two shots of bourbon <laughs> next to it and that's how it goes. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. Can we hear another song? Plod. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah. What are you gonna play for us? Uh it's a song called Heaven's Full of Mules. We haven't uh, put it out yet, but we've tracked it and probably will put it out. Perfect. Not too long. Okay, here live on Snacky Tunes. Not worth the damn 
Winston's are quoted as saying, wearing the band t-shirt to the band is a new power move. Explain. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, it's my friend Najla. She's a gym. We've had a couple of those. We like it. Um, yeah. It's undoing years, years uh, of the opposite. Right. Uh, no, we got a buddy, Fernando, who came to our release show and... By the time we started, with the first time those t-shirts were available, he had purchased one, put it on, and was in the front row. Better story about Fernando, not to one, try and one-up you, is that <laughs> on New Year's Eve, Fernando proposed to his lady during our set. She said yes. Congratulations, yeah. Fernando. Was he wearing the shirt? Well, he was by himself <laughs> at the... No, he didn't have the shirt yet. <laughs> but he was by himself when he had the shirt, but I think they're still... I don't know. I mean, January's not that... It's not that far away. <laughs> It's a really, it's not that far. <laughs> no, not that far. No, I th- yeah, I think all is well. Yeah. But he, uh, yeah, that is the new power move. We're buying the brand new band t-shirt, putting it on, and going to the front row. Just so, so they know that you're a fan. Not just because you're there, but you're there right. for them. Yes. Right. It does feel good. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, undeniable. It definitely feels good, especially if, you, if you're not the headliner. So they know that they came for oh, you. Yeah. yeah. Boy, like, do we love better. not being the headliner. We were, we were headlining that night, though, Oh, okay. Unfortunately. Apologies. Yeah. So just Fernando, the t-shirt. We should have not headlined our own release show. That would have been the real power move. That is a real power Actually, that is a real power move. Maximum humility. I think you play, you play second to last. So you're the, you're the peak. That's cool. And then you have and then uh, someone else the after plays. party. That's the after party. Mm. That's We've a, had that move before, haven't we? I don't know. How many releases have you had? Three. As many as I can get. Three. Yeah. Oh, in uh, clear plastic masks. <laughs> Our first tape, we had an after party. It was clear plastic masks. Okay. We were arguably the support for that. Arguably. For your own release party. <laughs> okay. Arguably. That's fine. So now you're tracking, but uh, any tours coming up, uh, hitting the road? We're going back down to Virginia at the end of this month. Uh, and playing some shows down there. Yeah, we're going to go uh, play our buddy uh, Gold Connections release at uh, the Southern in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. You know, play and most of my stuff around They're going to release on Fat Possum. Yeah. And we're going down there for that, and we're going to be in Jersey, right? And Yeah, Jersey. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. All the dirty towns. Yeah, Jersey, Philly, 
Not Probably Harrisonburg again. Harrisonburg, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. We played a wonderful open mic in Harrisonburg. Uh, were you booked ago. in? Were you booked in for the open mic, yeah. or did you just stop by? We were special guests. On uh, the, on we had the, a night the, off, but then we uh, we ended up we got paid and fed and it was drank. It was. I mean, maybe I don't understand the concept of open mic, but um, how did you get booked a, for an open mic? Uh, there, were, it was open, but. You know, other other random. No, somebody dropped out, right? And then we hopped on. We were we had a night off on the road. We had nothing better to do, and something fell in our lap. It's we took it. It, 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 it was mic. great. I think it was the best show I've ever played. Ever, ever. Yeah. It's ever, the best. Ever. It's the best open mic you've ever played. Harrisonburg, Virginia, Clementines. Yeah, best open mic. No, it's uh, Ruby's. It was downstairs. Ruby's is downstairs, and it's, yeah. and it's now a Dwayne Reed. <laughs> no, don't tell me that. Um, well, I want to get one last question in, or more of a statement before we, you guys take us out. Mm-hmm. Sent from the band, eggs, <laughs> they're just not for breakfast anymore. <laughs> Discuss. I eat eggs for every meal. Yeah. And my cholesterol yeah. is happy. I uh, Yeah, when I, I'll get a dozen eggs and I'll like hard boil half of them and just save them in the fridge for... Just because? Just a quick, healthy I mean, snack. You put, put an egg on anything, man. Right? You could. You could put an egg on anything. You could put it on a salad. Put it on a salad. Ice cream. You could call this egg by itself a salad. Yeah, you could. The classic trump card for you can put something on anything is ice cream. And vanilla ice cream with an egg on top, I think, with some salt would be really good. Wow. Okay. Egg Next. ice cream. <laughs> egg ice cream. Breaking boundaries. Well, uh, <laughs> you guys wait. <laughs> we're going to make sure you guys have time for one more song. Uh, where can people find you? Get the seven inch. Find out updates. Catch you on tour. Catch Winston. you at open mics. Winston's band, everything at dot com www. Yeah, everything's Winston's band. There's an S in there that people can't hear. Winston's Winston's band dot com slash Winston's band. Perfect. Uh, and no article, never ever an article. No the <laughs> or uh. That's just inappropriate. Uh, yeah, it's inappropriate. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would or counteract. These. We would, would be can- these Winstons. These Winstons. It would counteract all rooms of grammar and That's leave it. one of you out. Uh, from now on, we shall be known as these Winstons. That's pretty good. Band.com. <laughs> uh, what are you going to take us out with? Uh, this is a song. Uh, can you mildly curse on this? Yes. It's called Goddamn Goodbye. You're fine. Uh, well, thanks, everyone, for being on the show today. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Take us out. Thanks so much, listeners. Uh, yeah, there's a new one. We haven't put it out anywhere yet, I don't think. But we will. We will. We're putting it out right now. Out of the universe.
Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org/slash subscribe.